We are uh, studying how to, how to study your Bible. Uh, so there's been different uh, categories we've broken it up into. Well, I say we, Kyler, has broken this uh, study up into. And my task is to go over background. So I think you've gone over how to read, um, how to identify the context, and then I will help you in how to identify the background, how to learn the background. So we'll kind of go over what's the importance, why you need to know the background, um, and then we'll kind of go over some ways of how to, maybe just more examples of it. Um, there are tons of tools out there for you. There's resources all over the internet. There's all kind of Bible software. Um, I can give you a, a list of those things that you can, can, can use on your own, or you can go to our bookstore. There's a lot of different background commentaries. There's New Testament and Old Testament background commentaries that are available. Even in our own bookstore, you can go to Amazon, which may be cheaper. I'm probably not supposed to promote Amazon at all, but anyway, uh, everybody uses them. So uh, anyway, those are, those are things. We can, you can have all kind of tools to help you with background. Uh, we'll go over the importance of it and then how you can recognize some background information and how it helps you. So one thing I want to say before we start um, and before we pray is that you do not have to be an expert in the background of New Testament uh, culture to be able to understand what the Bible is saying, all right? You actually don't have to be an expert in all those categories to be able to read the Bible and gain information and be encouraged and uplifted by the Scriptures and be able to live out what it's saying and be able to understand it in a knowable way. Now, it's kind of like watching uh, TV. You know, when, uh, <clears throat> when Dave Cornette was young and, and TVs were black and white, uh, <laughs> I'm just glad you heard it, Dave. No. <laughs> With a black and white TV is just a little bit different than color TV, but you get the same gist of the story. You can still enjoy the, the show. You can enjoy the whole thing. You understand what's going on, but when things are in color, you get a little bit better picture. It, gets, it enriches the, the experience just a little bit more. There's even songs about it today, if I could see it in color. So seeing things in color, like black and white TV, it's kind of like when you read the Bible without understanding the background, you can get the gist of what they're saying. You kind of understand it. But if you were watching it in color, you would know all the details, and it would enhance the meaning all that more. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Hopefully you understand that. Let me pray, and then we'll start this evening. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word and for your truth. I pray that you minister to us, that you give us grace tonight as we um, learn how to study your word, the importance of understanding the background and the enhancement it gives us and understanding the stories and the truths that are uh, laid before us in the scriptures themselves. Lord, help us to be able to apply that into our personal Bible study and as our personal walk with Christ is enhanced tonight. Uh, we ask that that would be the case. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Uh, first thing we'll start with is why learn the background. And the first uh, little line there is the Bible's written in time and space. What does that mean? It's written in about real places. It's written in a real time, in a real environment. When, in Genesis, when God talks about creating the earth, this is a real place. And there's a real creation story. And you can say this, the scriptures are really the only, it's the only religious document 
that gives an explanation for all of the major things that you ask, all the major questions in life. The, the Christian Bible is the only one that answers all those things. And it gives a creation account. Uh, some of these other uh, crazy religions and cults don't really give answers for that. And if they do give an answer for it, it's absurd. So the Scripture is the only one that answers those kind of questions. So it's written about real places, real time, real space um, on this earth. And it's written about earth. There's real events that take place. You can, you can test them. Like the Genesis flood, for instance. We can see the effects of the flood on the earth. There's evidence of this on the earth. Now, some scientists would ignore those evidences, but there are major evidences on this earth. They're here. Noah's flood. Speaking about Noah's flood, just kind of, I have a question for you. I'm going to ask a question. I don't want you to answer it. It's just treated as a rhetorical question, but I want you to think of the answer in your head. I want you to think of the answer in your head. I don't want you to blurt it out uh, unless you're super confident and you want to. Uh, that's on you. But I'm going to ask you a question. How many animals did Noah take, not in total, how many did he take on the ark of each kind? Okay. I'm glad nobody answered. Immediately, most of you thought, right, two? That usually comes to mind. Two. But it's actually seven pair of clean animals and one pair of unclean. And we get that from the scripture. But we get the understanding of two because we hear this phrase two by two. That's how they got on the boat. But it was male and female. That was the whole point. They came on male and female, two by two, onto the boat. That's not how they, that's not the number of animals per kind. They brought seven of the clean kind and they got one pair of the unclean kind. We can read that in the scriptures. In fact, in Genesis chapter 7, if you'd like for me to make sure, um, I can read it to you if I can find it. All right, here it goes. Uh, Take with you seven pairs. This is verse 2 in chapter 7. It says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. We'll stop there. So this is where we know, and sometimes people are convinced, no, 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 it's just two. Well, the scripture's clear here. We just hear something one time, and then we kind of take it, and we just understand it as that's just the way it is. So it's important for us to understand. And here's one of the main things that we need to understand here and see is it's male and female. This is important. It was important in the creation order in the very beginning, and it's important today. And it will, it will be important forever. Okay? So just, that's just a side note. Then also you have Genesis chapter 11. There's real events that take place. How do we have different languages and different ethnic groups? Genesis chapter 11 tells us there's a Tower of Babel. The whole earth. God gave uh, humans a, a responsibility. Gave Noah's family a responsibility. They began to increase on the land. He said, all right, I want you to scatter and fill the whole earth. Well, they did the exact opposite. They decided they were going to come together, build a tower. And it's interesting, they built it of the same uh, material. They built the ark. So they made it waterproof. They didn't want to get flooded again. They didn't trust the Lord. Uh, there's a lot of things. If you can look in the background, this, this is interesting. Uh, in, Important information for us to understand as we study the Bible because it helps us understand the state and mind of man. 
they not only rebelled against God, they didn't believe God and they didn't want to believe God and they wanted to stay in their place and not do as God had commanded them to do. And so God confused their language and when their language was confused, it's just a natural thing for you to stick with people that speak your same language and begin to scatter over the earth. And that's how we have it. And this is why in almost every single culture, even the most remote culture in the entire universe, our entire earth, the most remote tribe somewhere in some bush somewhere that nobody's ever found of before, has no excuse that the truth of God was revealed to their, their people long before in history. And also, you see almost in every culture, there's some kind of flood story. There's some kind of story about a flood and a boat. Well, it's because they were all here at one time, in one place. And they've scattered, and their generations and generations and generations have passed down stories. Some have been godless nations now for centuries, and some have stayed true to the gospel. So that's, that's how that's worked. So it's helpful to understand all those things uh, for us. And, um, that's why man has no excuse for not trusting in the Lord. You'll understand about that as we understand general revelation. We have special revelation here in the scriptures. Um, it's written about Exodus. There's a real event that takes place. That's testable. You can, you can see this. You can, you can investigate the history. We still, even the most secular um, channels on TV, National Geographic, History Channel. They try to explain the event, but they do recognize the event happened. And so they try to explain the event all the time. So we, we, we have these things that are written. It's written in real places, in real time, in real place, in real space. The Bible's written by real people to real people. It's written by men in their cultures within the circumstances that they're in currently. And it's written to real people. Think about Paul. Paul is an author of the scriptures in the New Testament. He wrote to many different people. He also wrote to Corinth. We talk more about Corinth in a minute. Corinth was uh, an interesting place. Paul also wrote to a person named Timothy, to a man who is in leadership and a pastor. Paul wrote to him. Luke wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. He wrote to Theophilus wrote to a person. There's also a broader audience that they were writing to, but they were writing to an audience. They were writing to people. All right. So the Bible also reflects the culture of its day. What I want to do here is kind of just spend a little time talking about colloquial phrases or idioms uh, more so than, than uh, anything else. Talking about, you'll see this, in the scriptures, and it's good to know that there, like we, have, we have idioms in our culture, like you have your hands full, uh, or, you know, which means what? If I say I have my hands full, I am busy. We all know this. If I say that went over your head, that means you didn't understand what I said. Um, if I let the cat out of the bag, that means I did what? I told a secret. So we all know these are idioms that we have in our culture. Uh, well, so does the Scripture. The scripture has idioms as well. So let me just go over a few of these uh, idioms I pulled out of the Scripture so you might be able to have a little fun this, this evening. So it says like uh, in Job, uh, let me catch my breath. 
Like, give me some time. Job 9, 18 says this. Uh, a drop in the bucket in Isaiah 40. You know, we know what that means. It's even, this has crept into the English language. Apple of one's eye. This is in Scripture in Psalm 17. Um, <clears throat> Adam's apple is an English idiom that we get from the Scriptures. So, these are things that we take from the scriptures that, that we see them. Also, like handwriting on the walls in Daniel, um, under your wing, or, um, Psalm. There is Good Samaritan, we get that from the book of Luke. Uh, extending an olive branch in Genesis to miss the mark in also Luke, meaning you have sinned in some way. The Bible also contains a lot of these from the scriptures and from the Hebrew language, like seed. Seed can refer to children or descendants flowing with milk and honey. It's something that means that the land is fertile. A melting heart means you've lost courage in the scriptures in Deuteronomy. Cover one's feet. Now, what does that mean? That means you're using the restroom. It's just an idiom for that culture. To, it's in Judges and 1 Samuel. It's euphemistic for relieving yourself of going to the restroom. Gird up your loins. It means you better get ready. Get yourself ready. Jeremiah, Job. Um, with child, or even in different translations, having in the belly in Matthew. Well, that means you're pregnant. Okay, I wouldn't go up and say that to anybody in the English language right now. That would be kind of odd or weird, but that's what it meant then. Uh, Abraham's bosom. It's an idiom for heaven. Okay, those are things that we see in the scriptures, and in the scriptures, and it's helpful for us to know those things because it gives us an idea of what is being communicated in the scriptures. That's what we're doing. We try to understand those things. It's it's good for us to know the culture. The way we learn those things is we we can see it in scripture. You read the context. You read, and really the scripture gives commentary to scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. You can see this. All over. You'll see one, one portion here. You'll be able to get an idea of something, and you'll see it again somewhere else. It's the, it's the culture. It's the way they, they operate. Another thing that is interesting about, like, the Jewish culture is when they use language. They have, like, uh, linguistic uh, techniques that they use. So you'll see oftentimes in the Scriptures they repeat words. So they may say something twice. It's to emphasize that word. If they say something three times, it's to bring that word to its superlative, meaning the, the highest meaning that word could possess. And you see that only happens in the scriptures a few times. And it happens in Isaiah when the, uh, the Lord is describing, uh, the angels are describing the Lord. He is holy, holy, holy. He can be no more holy. This is the superlative of the word holy. There's nothing that can be more holy than the Lord. It happens again in Revelation where it says, holy, holy, holy. There's also a time where it says, whoa, 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 in Revelation chapter 8, talking about judgment. So that word is to its superlative. Those are, um, because of the way the Jewish culture uh, uses their language, that brings that word to its superlative. It happens uh, on occasion in the scriptures. Not very often for the three times. It does happen when they repeat it, verily, verily. Or he calls someone's name, Samuel, Samuel. It's more intimate. You'll see it in, it, it enhances the scripture when you especially look at it in, in the scriptures in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, where he says, 
Lord, Lord, have we not done this in your name and this in your name and that in your name? And yet he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. The one communicating believes he knows the Lord, but the Lord does not know him. It makes it worse because he's using it, Lord, Lord, like he's repeating it, like I know you, I know you. But he does not. So if we have those little, um, that background information, it just enhances the knowledge that the scripture can give us. Can give us. And culture helps us do that. So the Bible reflects the culture of its day. It's written. With, if we were writing the scriptures today, we would write it with extremely strange phrases to people that may, uh, may experience our culture 100 years from now. It would be extremely strange for, for some of these things. Like, uh, does anybody know what bussin' means? Yeah, apparently, like, it means good food. Yeah, I didn't know that. See, all you were like, you know, maybe some parents with some teenagers understand this, but that's about all of you. You thought I was talking about you, you have a, a bus, and you bust from one place to another. But that's not what we're talking about in our culture. So culture does, if, it does affect communication. It does affect language. It's important for us to understand the culture so we can understand the words that are being used in, in the Scriptures and how they're being communicated. So the Bible reflects the culture of his day. Now, how do we learn this background? How do we, so it's good to know the background, but how do, we, how do we learn the background? Well, we learn it, first of all, but we need to find out who the author of the book is. It's important for you to find out who the author of the book is. Now, most of the New Testament is, is reflected in the name of the book is the author. Not, not all. Like, Timothy is not written by Timothy. It's written by Paul. Titus is not written by T- Titus. Uh, there's, there's books in the Scripture. Ruth is not written by Ruth. But a lot of times in Scripture, and especially in New Testament, it is written by the author's name. Peter is. Um, so Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, those are. There's other Scriptures that are not. So 1 Corinthians isn't a name of a person. It's a church. He, or it's a an area where a church is that Paul is writing to. So these are things that we, we need to know. Matthew is written by Matthew. Mark is written by Mark. John is written by John. These are helpful information as you, as you study this. But it's like the, we call the, the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They say similar things. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like, you know how the, the news today, everybody, everything's scripted and it's all the same. You turn on one channel, they say the exact same thing. You know, CBS, ABC, NBC, all the same, right? And then you got, like, uh, I don't know, some random news organization It's not that says something different. That's kind of like John. John's like, like the, I don't know, 1440 or some Internet uh, news company that says something different than everybody else. John is his own world. He's not as, as in line with the other, other Gospels. He has his own agenda to teach the deity of Christ, and so it's a little bit different in how it is, it is done. But it's important to know what they're trying to communicate. Matthew being a tax collector, what he's trying to communicate. Mark uh, getting his information from Peter and what he's trying to communicate in the Scriptures. Mark doesn't even really go into the genealogies as Matthew does, trying to establish Christ as king and the Messiah. And Mark, emphasis more, his emphasis is more on the humanity. It's important to understand the author because you can get an idea of what's going on. When Paul's writing to Timothy, he's writing it for a purpose. He's the author. He's... He loves Timothy. He's trying to be encouraging to Timothy and give him instruction about how to be a pastor. So it's, it's good to know that who the author is and what he's writing him to. 
When it's written. The dating. The dating of the writing of the scriptures. Um, this is important um, for different books, but it's really important for the book of Revelation. It's probably the one that's, uh, if, there, if there's a couple different dates that matter to the book of Revelation. So if it's written A.D. 65, that's kind of the early, um, that's the early date of the, rev, uh, the, the writing of Revelation. Or it could be written in 95, A.D. 95. Well, if it's written in 65, then that's before the fall in A.D. 70. So if you're thinking Revelation is pointing to the future and it was written in A.D. 65, then it happened, everything that happened in Revelation happened in A.D. 70. But if it, if it was written in A.D. 95 and you think it's about the future, then it's all yet to come. So it's important to understand when a book is written and understand those things. It helps the interpretation of the book. It also helps how you interpret the end times in the book of Revelation like that. So, does that make sense? We're all tracking? All right. We might get done soon here. All right, so to whom is it written? To whom is it written? Are we on the right page? Everybody good? When it's written matters. To whom it's written matters. It's like, so Ruth was written in a, different, in a time where the, the judges were ruling. You've read the book of Judges. What is the big thing, the big refrain in the book of Judges? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's, there's this continual sin. It's a cycle that happens like six times all the way through the book of Judges. So it's just a difficult time. There's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of good things going on. Well, Ruth is written in the midst of all that, and it's hopeful. It's a joyful, wonderful, dramatic love story. It's a, it's a book about God's grace and God's kindness and God's preservation. And if you think about, if you read this book of Ruth, you, you know she's a Moabite. If we understand the, the background in the scriptures, where we learn that background is in the scriptures. We can look back in Genesis, I believe it's in 19, and find out where do the Moabites come from? Well, it's an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. So the Moabite people were terrible. They also were bad to the people of God. They were started in a, in a terrible situation. They weren't the greatest people in the entire world. But here you have Ruth, who is a Moabite, who marries into the, the, the line of Christ. She becomes um, pivotal in the story. And if you go through the genealogy that even the New Testament gives us, she's there. She marries Boaz, who is a, her descendant is Jesse. And then you have David, and then you have the line of Christ. Here's this Moabite. It makes the story so much better because you have this, this Moabite that God uses in his line for the Messiah to be born. So it's good. It's good to see this. And it's encouraging, especially to those of us who are sinners. That means all of us, right? Just, just in case some of you were confused to who I was calling out. <clears throat> so uh, 1 Peter is written to an audience of people who, uh, the dispersion. So Rome has been basically you know, destroyed. They blame it on the, on the Christians. And so everybody's hiding. And they need encouragement. And so 1 Peter... And 2 Peter are written to those people and giving encouragement 
to those people in, that are dispersed all over. Philemon. Does anybody know why Philemon was written? Who it's written to? What it's written about? Paul writes this to a man named Philemon who's in the church of Colossae. And he writes this letter and he encourages him because he had a slave that stole from him and ran away and ended up in Rome, somehow came into Paul's ministry, gets saved, and Paul's like, you need to go make things right with Philemon. This servant's name is Onesimus. He sends Onesimus back with two letters. One for the church of Colossae, which we have Colossians, and the other one is Philemon. He takes it back to him, not as his slave, but as his brother in Christ. It makes the story so much better when we understand the background. It makes it so much sweeter to know this story. He was a former slave, and now he is a brother in Christ. And this misreturns to Philemon. And Paul encourages him. Paul encourages Philemon to accept him as his brother and that he will pay all the debt that is owed him on his path. He would charge it to Paul, and Paul will take care of it. Uh, Matthew 21. Let's, let's look at Matthew 21 real quick. Because uh, this is a cultural thing. And there's an audience. You, you know your audience when you're writing here. So there's this small parable about this withered fig tree, this cursed fig tree. Verse 18 in, verse, in chapter 21. And if you don't turn there, you can just listen to me. I'm not going to read long. It says this. In the morning... As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. He being Jesus, sorry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Man, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Now, I want to stop there because, like, what does this even mean? Why is this there? Why did he get mad at the fig tree? This seems like an odd story. This seems uh, difficult to, to kind of wrap your head around. But um, he just, he was talking about cleansing the temple. He's talking about there's a bunch of people, there's a context that we're, we're in the middle of. But he goes out, he's hungry, he goes and sees this, he sees this fig tree. And in that land, in the Palestine, Palestinian land, there's a certain type of fig tree that only blossoms in one season of the year, and it's like the most... Uh, you know, sought after fig in all the land. Like there's fig trees that, that grow and they grow and they in certain seasons and they die and they don't always produce figs all the time. But there, there are figs that are usually available. But this particular fig tree that's really popular in the area, that's really sweet, that's really good, that everybody loves, only blossoms in a certain time. And when it blossoms and when it produces fruit, it's, it's recognizable because it has uh, blossoms on it, it has leaves on it. And so when the leaves are there, there's always fruit. And so you go and pick it. And man, it's kind of like, you know, if you see a bunch, uh, you see packs of Reese cups over in the corner. And you're walking by like, man, I want a Reese cup. And you get it. It's a good Reese cup. And you get over to that Reese cup bag. And I mean, it's just, it looks beautiful. It looks like it's brand new. And you, and you pick it up and you realize this is fake and it's empty. There's nothing in it. There's just wrappers with they look full, but they're empty. There's nothing in them. Would that make you happy? Let's all be honest. You're in a church. No, that wouldn't make you happy. You'd be mad. You'd be upset. You might even sin under your breath. It, it would make you upset. You'd be angry. 
So the Lord, who was hungry, he saw this, thought, that fig, that's the good stuff. Got to get some figs. Goes over, there's no figs. So now he's not happy with the trees. No more fruit for you. For this tree, he's withered to death. What's the point? The point is, he's a hypocrite. The tree is hypocritical. The tree is saying by the blossoms that are produced that I have fruit, that I'm a true believer. I mean, in this context, you all learned about context last week, but just, just this is where we talked about people being robbers in the temple. They, they act like they're Christians. They act like they're doing things right, but they're not. This tree was displaying blossoms like he had fruit, but further inspection proved that he did not have fruit. That's what a hypocrite is. That's what a fake Christian is. You display the outward look of a Christian, but on, upon further inspection, there's no real fruit, and you don't possess it, and you're not a real Christian. That's what he's talking about. But if you were not like part of the culture, you wouldn't understand all those things. Now it's understood. It enhances the meaning of the passage. It gives you better understanding. So it's important to know who you're writing to, what's going on. All right, so where were the, where were the recipients? The setting. Where were the recipients? <clears throat> so think about, think about Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the Jewish people that had just left Egypt. They're just kind of walking around. Think about where they're at. They get across the... Uh, they get across the river, the Red Sea. They cross over this sea here. And now God needs to do something. They're, they're now a nation. He's establishing a nation, and he has to do some things. First of all, they need the law. So he gives them the law in Exodus. And then he gives them how to worship. There's a, a right way to worship. That There's a right way to approach God. And he gives them that information in Leviticus. There's a right way to operate in how you deal with one another. And that's also in Leviticus. There's, and in Exodus, there's a way to in, interact with people. If you do this, you, you're, you're to pay that. If, if something happens by accident, you can run to this refuge city. He sets it up. He, he allows them to have rules and law and governance uh, in this as they establish a nation. So there's the setting in which that all is delivered and what's important. And it helps you understand why that's being delivered. And Deuteronomy, which means just second law, is he repeats what took place in Exodus because, you know, they didn't want to go and take the promised land. So this is just a reminder of what has already been established. So this is what's going on in, the, in that time. Uh, Revelation 3. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. You know, that's that famous passage. Uh, does anybody know? Just off the top of your head. It's the famous passage where the, don't, be, don't be cold or hot uh, or be cold or hot. If you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of your mouth. Let's just read that passage really, really quickly, or I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. But in Revelation chapter 3, it's the church of Laodicea, and it says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of your mouth. Now we look at that and we think, well, you think hot is good and cold is what? Bad, right? That's what we think. We think hot is good, cold is bad. Somewhere in the middle, that's when he gets mad. So I'd, it, I'd, it's better for me to be just like not even a Christian at all or super on fire than for me to be in the middle ground here. That's really not what's going on here in Laodicea. They, they were kind of in the between two cities. 
uh, and their water system wasn't as good as some of the other cities around. They had good water, had drinking water, but some of the hot springs that they got hot from, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was, it was not as hot as it used to be. And they, they could get some cold water, but they couldn't always get good cold water. So you have hot water, which is good, and you have cold water, which is good. But lukewater is trash. Nobody wants lukewarm water, right? If you're really hot and you want something to drink, do you want lukewarm water or do you want cold, refreshing water? If you're trying to clean something, do you want cold water or do you want hot water? You want some hot water. All right, so there, there's usefulness for hot water. There's usefulness for cold water. There's nobody has any use for lukewarm water. And that's, that's kind of what's being said and stated here. If we understand the context, understand the, the background, it helps us to get a better picture of what's being communicated. <clears throat> In the setting of, of Corinth, think about the book of Corinth, or Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. There's actually a third book that we don't have uh, that the Lord didn't want in the canon, and so it's not in there, but he, he mentions writing the third book, uh, Paul does, because that church was jacked up. It always amazes me there's churches called, you know, Corinthian Baptist Church or whatever. I don't understand. I don't really understand that. They had some stuff. They were, they were kind of messed up. But let's just put, this, let's put ourselves here for a second. What was the setting of Corinthian, of the, the Corinthian culture? Man, it, it, was, it was interesting culture. It was a port city. It was like an isthmus. So like there was this, it was a small strip of land between two seas. Like it was basically a shortcut to get around. They didn't have to go around the whole peninsula. They could just kind of go right in the middle, it, almost like a, like a canal, but it wasn't. They had to walk over land, and then they could put their boat in the sea, and they could shave off days worth of travel. So it was a, it was a hopping place. There was, a, I mean, Tons of people coming through there, all kind of different cultures, all kind of travel. So they had, they had temple prostitutes. They, had, they, were, they were worshiping idols. They, had, they were immoral people by all kinds of stretches of the imagination. They were, it, what I like to say is it's the Las Vegas of the Bible. Okay? It, it was insane. I mean, it had all kinds of people, all kinds of culture running through there, and there was sin uh, rampant in that area. But the church was there and doing its best. But they struggled with sin because it was in that culture. I mean, this was a popular place. They had the, what's called the Isthmian Games. It was more popular than the Olympics at, at one or two points in history. It was a very popular place to go. This is why Paul even speaks to them with athletic language in 1 Corinthians 9 because they're used to this type of language. He helps communicate in that way because this is the setting in which they live. It's important for us to understand that. Uh, Paul writes to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians 4-7. Uh, you know, if you've, you understand the book of Philippians is these people loved Paul and they gave to Paul on a, a regular basis. They, at least two times they gave money to Paul. They tried to help him out and, and minister to him and, and gave him goods and things and they were really upset that he was in prison. And he was writing to them from prison, encouraging them. Like, oh, I'm good. These chains are good, man. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. And then he writes in this, in Philippians, you know, that famous passage in chapter 4. I'm not talking about verse 13. What I'm talking about is when the Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness known, everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then he says this, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, circle that word guard, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In the jail that he was in, the Roman jails that they were in, oftentimes prisoners were chained to actual guards. You were literally chained to the guard himself. He's pinning this letter chained to another human that's guarding him. And he's encouraging them, hey, you think on these things, you do these things, and God himself will guard you. With the picture and the image of this guard chained to you. Imagine God being chained to your heart. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. This peace of God chained to your heart. Think about that background. Who you want guarding your heart? How closely do you want him guarding your heart? And Roman soldiers, man, they would lose their life if they lost their prisoner. At all costs, they guarded their prisoners. So, hopefully that helps. Uh, We're almost done. I think. Yep. Almost done. So what was happening? Think about what was happening. So, uh, think about uh, John, uh, John 13. Uh, when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. What's going on in that scene? It's the Last Supper. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's washing the feet of disciples. Is that significant? It's extremely significant. Why? Because the background of that culture, feet washing was a terrible job. Terrible job. In fact, it was so bad, it was so low, it was viewed such as a, as a as a low job that only slaves did it. And if you were even a Jewish slave, Jewish slaves wouldn't do it. And most owners of slaves wouldn't ask the Jewish slaves to do it. It would be a non-Jewish slave that would had to do, that had to wash the feet of the guests. And here's Jesus himself, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and he takes out, off his outer garment and he wraps himself with a towel and he bends down and he begins to clean the feet of the disciples and they freak out. You're not doing this to me. Why? Why did it matter so much? Because this is the lowest job anybody in their estimation could have. And then he explains it to him, and Peter's like, wash not only my feet but my whole body. If, if you understand the background, it just makes it a little bit better. It's not that you can't understand what's going on. You could have understood the whole story without knowing that. But it makes a little bit more color come to life in the story when you understand those things. And then why was it written? What are the circumstances? You have here the, the pastoral epistles are good examples of that. Paul is writing to first, or writing to Timothy, and he's writing to Titus, and he's giving them help, instruction. Especially Timothy's a young man. He tells them not to be anxious. Why do you have to tell somebody not to be anxious? Usually because they're anxious. Like you don't say calm down to somebody that's very calm. That actually might incite them. Did you tell me to calm down? Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize. <clears throat> anyway, uh, but this is why. Like there, there's the circumstances. Paul, who is training up uh, Timothy, and Paul 
at that time when he was writing Timothy, man, he was on his last legs. Man, he was about to die. He knew it was coming, his life was coming to an end. He knew that they were about to kill him. He knew. He said, man, my ministry's coming to an end. Your ministry's not. Here's what you need to remember. These are the important things. Guard the gospel. He gives them explicit instructions. He gives them, uh, he encourages him. It gives them instructions. Stay away from these people. Hold fast to this. Do that. Don't do that. Don't let these people creep in. Name them. He gives it to them because this is what a pastor does. He encourages Titus. He encourages Timothy. He gives them final instructions as he's about to leave this earth. And that's why it's important to understand uh, what's what the Scripture is and what it's trying to communicate and what it's saying. And the background gives us a little bit more information in all of those uh, areas. It just helps us a little bit more. Now, I'll tell you this. How do you get this information? How do you, how do you gain this information? How do I learn about those things? Man, there's a thousand different websites that you can go to. There are many different places you can go. Now, not everybody that says something about the Bible is accurate. Okay, so we've tried to help you. We've got some resources. We have a resource page on our website that gives you good books that you can learn about. We have some, uh, a great bookstore um, that has a lot of good resources. You can get background commentaries. You can get regular commentaries. I think uh, a really good tool is a Bible uh, study Bible. My favorite study Bible is the ESV study, ESV study Bible. I like it a lot. I like, think it's a really good study Bible. And the study Bibles are good because you don't have to go look for another book. It's always right there. There's good handbooks. Um, John MacArthur has a good hand, Bible handbook. Um, there's a lot of other good handbooks out there that, com- that comment on the Bible and give background information and helpful information as you study the scriptures. And there's many good websites. Blue Letter Bible is one of my favorites. I cut my, te- cut my teeth on the Blue Letter Bible. It's blueletterbible.org. It's a great little website. There's a Bible app called stepbible.org. Just how it says, S-T-E-P bible.org. It's a great little resource. You touch a word and it gives you the uh, information about each word. It also gives you some historical background and other things like this. There's a whole lot more out there. I'm happy to give you some information. Our bookstore has a lot of things that, that you'll be fine with. There's plenty of information in there. And uh, our website also has a lot of resources that we give uh, to you to be able to help study those things. So those are ways you can do it on your own. Uh, it's helpful. I would encourage you to get used to it. But here's what I want you to leave here with. If you go, well, if I don't know that, how am I supposed to know the Bible? It's not, it's not hard. You just read it. The only thing that the background does is it just enhances. It helps you understand it at a deeper level. It doesn't mean you can't understand the Bible. It just means you're understanding it in black and white. And you could, if you understood the background, have a little bit more color in your understanding. That's it. Let me pray and get you out of here. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the culture in which you uh, wrote this scripture so that we can understand it in a, in a way that is helpful to us. Lord, help us to, to be diligent in our Bible study. Help us to read and understand and to walk worthy of the high calling of Jesus Christ in our life. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.